Hey, Sorceress fans, this is part two of our coffee episodes. If you haven't listened to part one yet, please go back and take a listen. We cover Ethiopia, how coffee is traded there, and we speak to an Ethiopian exporter. Welcome back to part two of our coffee episode. Welcome back. So excited. So this is a consumption side of coffee. Let's talk about why we wanted to do this. I think for me, the important part here is consumers are the ones that are drinking and paying for the coffee. And you're also the ones that are listening to this podcast right now. So we want to give you an insight into what you're buying and what you're drinking and what effect you have on the market, right? Yeah, absolutely. I typically either buy coffee online or I walk into a cafe, but most people buy their coffee in a grocery store. Carolyn, what do you look for when you're looking for coffee? I have no idea what I'm doing when I stand in the coffee aisle. I'm overwhelmed and I usually stand there for five minutes before I just freak out and pick something. I I don't know. You're not going to like this answer. Well, maybe you will, but you'll you'll understand. We've talked about this in depth. I usually pick something that's like middle of the road price-wise because I have no idea how to do it otherwise. You also know how my brain works. So I get all tripped up. I'm a marketer. So I know that certain packaging costs more and certain brands cost more. And I'm torn between the pretty packaging that I know costs more. And is that related to the price that's available versus the certifications that are on there versus all these things? And my brain just gets so jumbled because I'm so connected in all of these systems and I'm so connected in these and I still don't know what the right answer is. Yeah. Like that's wild. It's interesting you bring up marketing because these buzzwords that were used in marketing before, like fair trade and organic, and we're going to get into that in this episode, are showing up less and less. And there's more emphasis on nice bags and having a great typeface and not having so much information on the bag and people really trusting that they're doing the right kind of sourcing. Where, you know, typically if you can see that there's a farmer name, most of the time, that coffee has been compensated for fairly. That's how I make a choice. That's good to know. And I'm going to remember that because that's not one of the things. I mean, it's also just information overload. There's so much on a bag of coffee. There's not many coffees like that in the grocery store because what do they do at grocery stores? They say, we need everything to be cheaper because we do high volumes. And if you want access to more customers, we need it to be in this price range. And all of a sudden you're put against multinational companies and this independent brand is right next to them, and they have to be price competitive with someone that has 50 to 1,000 locations, depending on who you're next to, it's just an unfair and unrealistic situation, and it drives, you know, it drives prices down while confusing people in the marketplace. No wonder people don't know what to do. In this episode, you're going to hear us say the C market a lot. You probably heard it a couple of times in the first episode. We do have an educational episode that's all about commodities, which is what the C market plays into or is. But why don't you tell us what the C market is in terms of the coffee world? Yeah, so the C market is based in New York City, and it dictates the price of coffee for almost everywhere in the world. And you get these prices by trading volumes of coffee, which feel virtual, but actually are real, and their commodity grade, meaning below a certain quality. The biggest producers in this landscape are Vietnam and Brazil, and when their yields, meaning how much coffee they're producing, goes up or down, 
the market goes up or down. The main thing to know about the C market is that it has historically been too low for at least 40 years. So a good way to think about it is that in the 1970s, the C market price for coffee was about the same as it is today. So imagine if you were earning the same amount of money or if your labor had the same value as in the 1970s, but you had the costs of today. It's kind of like this mystery zone where, and you'll hear this if you go and listen to that commodities episode, but most of the food and beverage that we consume comes from the C market, but it's this no man's land where consumers don't really have a connection to what's going on, how much is getting paid, and it's dealt with like like Wall Street. Yeah, it's very insular too. Like my first job on the trading floor, it was so confusing to me because there were screens and, you know, you were adding up prices based on what these screens were saying and you were, you know, you had the price, and then you had the differential, and then you had margin and there's someone that's making all these calls and it just felt so disconnected from what I had seen in coffee before, which was, know your farmer. This is entirely a numbers game, and it's also how much of coffee is traded. I don't know specifically numbers-wise, but I would say 90% is safe to say. Wow, and that's crazy, but I also totally believe that. You know, I'm out fundraising for my company right now. You know, especially being out here in New York, I have a, a closer tie to a lot of markets that I didn't when I was living out in California. And... This is one of the the interesting things that came up for us in research was there are because coffee's been growing at such a clip in popularity they're now being consolidated by these very large companies and this is something that happens so we're not calling anybody out here it, this is what happens in all markets but this is something that is happening very recently in coffee and there's one company in particular JAB Holdings that from 2012 to 2018 has quietly consolidated all of these all of these companies I'm about to read off. Intelligentsia, Pete's Coffee and Tea, Stumptown Coffee, Mighty Leaf Tea, Caribou Coffee, Panera, Einstein Bagels, Keurig, and like a handful of others. That's a lot of coffee. Yeah. All going through one holding company. They have a vested interest in buying coffee specifically this way because it lowers their risk thresholds. But the thing about the sea market is it's it's volatile so much that p- weather patterns in Brazil can make the prices go up or down for all the countries in the world and because they are such a large producer. And so although this is widely known that this is not the way that we should price coffee. Most roasters are still buying some coffee on the sea market, if not all of it, and they don't always even know it because if it looks cheaper to them, it helps them with their margins, and I'm not sure many people question it. It's kind of meant to be secret. Honestly, when I first saw how this was working, I was kind of terrified. It it is meant to be a secret. It's not something anybody sits you down and educates you. About. And Heliana spoke about this in part one, where why are these companies taking a vested interest? Why are they purchasing all of them? It's because coffee is highly profitable only in one sector, and that's in the consumption sector. We're going to start this segment by looking at the cultural side of coffee consumption in the U.S. Here's Carolyn again. Hello. She's going to take us through the rise of the specialty coffee industry, which can be grouped into three waves of preparation and consumption trends. 
The first wave in coffee was all about increasing consumption. It began in the 1930s and lasted until the late 1950s. It was full of cheap, low-quality, dark-roasted coffee in airtight cans and pre-ground portion packs. First waivers are those who made what we like to think of as bad coffee commonplace. In that respect, the first wave was really a precursor to the demand for higher quality coffee. Consumption in the U.S. continued to develop and the second wave of specialty coffee began to take shape. This time, the coffee industry started to look at the product from an artisan's approach. From the 1960s to the mid-1990s, these second waivers borrowed knowledge from the wine industry and applied it to coffee origins and roasting. The Specialty Coffee Association of America, or SCAA, was founded in 1982 with intentions of creating coffee quality standards. The SCAA created a platform for dialogue through forums between all sorts of coffee entrepreneurs. They published quality control literature as well as their newsletter, In Good Taste. Starbucks is often used as an example of a hyper second wave company because it introduced specialized coffee words like latte and macchiato to a wide base of consumers who were not currently using those words. Meanwhile, Guatemala and El Salvador, major coffee producing countries, were in turmoil. Military coups and guerrilla warfare damaged the country's ability to produce. Coffee estates, which were seen as major sources of potential wealth, lied at the center of these conflicts. Neighbor to Neighbor, an activist group based in San Francisco, in true San Francisco fashion, picketed the SCAA conference that year. They dumped buckets of red stained water on the steps, denouncing death squad coffee. Even Red Apple, New York City's largest supermarket chain, temporarily agreed to suspend Folgers purchases and then to display neighbor to neighbor literature in their stores. Fair trade label first evolved from these particular conflicts. The concept emerged through the existing company Equal Exchange. Fair trade guaranteed minimum price regardless of market fluctuations. They created their own brand and certification process. The certification's greatest strength to this day is that it's still the only certification to set a minimum price regardless of quality. By the mid-1990s, coffee giants were wrestling with companies that promoted ethical buying because consumers began to respond to certification labels on coffee bags as a marketing of ethical purchase. Now we get to the third wave. The third wave of specialty coffee began as a reaction to companies like Starbucks, who wanted to automate and homogenize specialty coffee through their franchise. Each store had identical interior design and menu offerings and automatic instead of manual espresso machines. This is where the third waivers differed. It took the artisan approach from the second wave and emphasized artisanship at both ends of the coffee production and service. These third waivers were not the first coffee guys to realize that farmers mattered, but they are the first to travel constantly and communicate readily with farmers in remote areas. I started my coffee journey in the third wave, and then I worked my way up, and we entered the fourth wave, where most roasters are trying to figure out where to go from here, and how. We created all of these buzzwords, redesigned bags, really nailed down sensory descriptors, started social media accounts, and built beautiful cafes that look as expensive as they were to build. And there's something that's happened during all of this. Remember earlier when we talked about the consolidation of companies into a portfolio? We've also seen this happen with importers, where they open a boutique wing. 
They have beautiful coffees, investment projects, they work with women's groups, open million dollar tasting rooms and education centers. And so we have this environment where consumers want to know why they are paying more for a cup of coffee. And then we have roasters who are trying to figure out what claims they can make, managing their budgets, all while trying to stay relevant and in touch with what their customers want. And when you have a company with a million dollar tasting room doing awesome projects like community yoga, roasting classes, and serving double fermentation lots with one hand, and selling mostly sea market coffee that perpetuates poverty with the other hand, it's very confusing. And I know that this is controversial. It's just that we need to hold them accountable. Accountability is the fourth wave. It has to be. We're going to cover a lot on this one. It's a little bit of a different format, and we have two guests this time. We speak with Mike Nelson, a cafe owner that talks with us about the challenges of cafe ownership and customer education. And we also get to chat with Nick Kirby from Inveritas about how their new technology is allowing them to map the coffee world. And it's going to change the landscape of what claims we can make in the industry from here on out. Thanks for joining us, and let's dive in. Last February, when I was in Ethiopia and spoke with Heliana from part one, I also met with a guy named Raymond. He emailed me to ask to come and taste with our team while we were in town. I had heard rumblings of this company called Inveritas, who the company that I work for was going to partner with in the coming year. When I met with him, he told me he was there as part of a project to map the coffee world to get contextual data to communicate to consumers in hopes that they can fill the gap in information and to break the binary ideas of ethical purchasing as a black and white affair. So when I knew we were going to do a consumption side of this episode, I called up Nick Kirby. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, happy to pick up where Raymond left off. Mapping the coffee world is something that I think in, in our mind, it's very important if we want to play a positive role in coffee value chains, we first need to understand who the population we're focused on is um, and, and having an accurate number even about the number of coffee, you know, how many coffee farmers are there in the world has been something that no one has settled on. And you would hear everywhere from, you know, 125 million farmers to 30 million farmers to 10 million farmers to everywhere kind of in between. So the focus of Inveritas is to reach smallholder farmers. And in order to do that, we need to know how many there are. So the first piece of work that we undertook as an organization was to conduct a global farmer study and try to answer this question, how many farmers are there in the world? We landed on the number of about 12 and a half million farmers. You know, a large portion of them are smallholders, depending on how you define a smallholder. Is it below five hectare farm, below 20 hectares? Um, you know, do you control for places like Brazil where there are larger farms? Um, but somewhere in the, the range of 60 to 80%, depending on how you define a smallholder farmer, is what we found around the world. In, in doing that and using available resources that were out there, be they official statistics from governments, other studies that academics and NGOs have done, um, census data, you know, looking at, at information from um, you know, the World Bank, the UN, different things like that, and coupling that with satellite imagery and using artificial intelligence to detect where coffee is located, looking at, you know, not only where the plants are, but then where the communities are around them, and then also taking 
production numbers, you know, nationally reported production numbers and knowing what we know about average yields, we, we sort of zeroed in on, you know, what we feel are, are pretty accurate estimates as to how many farmers are located in specific regions in every, in every country around the world where coffee is produced. So that was the first part of what we did. And conducting that work, creating this map has enabled us to then um, employ a new approach to reaching those farmers to actually get a chance to speak with a representative sample of that total population. When you're mapping this population, what is the main goal for using that information? Yeah, so the goal is to ultimately, you know, in Veritas as an organization is focused on eliminating poverty within coffee producing communities by the year 2030. Again, in order to do that, we need to, to figure out where we're starting. What is the starting point? And if we want to achieve that, we need to facilitate the resources to flow to where they can have the greatest impact. And so the goal, you know, within the next, the, I would say within the next five years is to start to, you know, not only provide a best in class verification product, a, a sustainability assurance product for roasters and start to generate a surplus of money that we can use directly as in Veritas to invest in projects that, that we believe in, that we believe represent the best return on investment for that sustainability spend. And then in so doing also provide a level of assurance to roasters, a level of sustainability assurance that goes beyond what's been historically possible through certifications and other schemes, and then also enable them to direct their resources more effectively. You know, a lot of roasters are spending money on sustainability interventions and impact focused projects without a lot of awareness about what the context is, what is necessarily needed in a given community, what can have the biggest impact, um, and then who can do that work and then ultimately how to monitor it. Um, so there's a lot of money that, you know, is being spent in ways that lends itself to further refinement. Um, and there's a lot of there's a there's an appetite for that in the industry. And then more broadly, you know, within the specialty industry, there's there's this open question. Does paying higher prices for coffee lead to better outcomes in producer communities? Does that um, play out in the same way in 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 every country, uh, you know, for farmers of different sizes? Um, so what we want to be able to do is, is answer some of those questions. Um, and at least, you know, if we can't completely answer them, get farther along in the in the investigation of those issues, provide that service to the industry and generate enough money not only to operate and to continue to innovate and, and develop this platform that's enabling us to gain this sort of landscape level perspective on the sustainability conditions in producing communities, but then also to generate our own surplus of money so we can fund projects through other organizations that reach that population that's very hard for many roasters to reach. Yeah, I think that it's funny because the third wave, you know, we talked about farmers so much and this traceability and this, you know, high-end lots and these exclusivity and these, right. you know, continuity of buying. And yet, you're right, we talk about paying more money for coffee for quality. And now the conversation is sort of shifting where, well, maybe the highest quality coffees should get that much, but the lowest quality coffees should definitely get more than what are being paid now, especially if they're purchased on right. the sea market. Right. I think that a lot of roasters are realizing that they don't really have enough information, right. that the systems that we have are very insufficient. And you know, generally speaking, they have rejected the certification model. Some people still, still use it, but in general, right. people sort of got a little bit weary. And I know one of the things that sets Veritas apart 
among many other things, is that you're not charging farmers for this uh, verification, right? And you're also choosing the word verification. So I'd love for you to talk about how you made that choice and how you figured out how to do this without charging farmers, because every single model from fair trade to organic um, to RFA Right. They, they function that way. Yeah, we're doing something different. And I think the, the key distinction that sets us apart is that we are not involved in the supply chain. We are a non-commercial entity. Right. Um, we don't buy and sell coffee. We're a nonprofit. So we have, we have no vested interest in the outcome of the assessments that we are conducting. Whereas with a certification, just by definition, if it's not certified, then you can't sell it as such. So certifications and, and you know, various schemes promoted by by traders by anyone in the supply chain bring that baggage of the con the 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 conflict of interest just structurally you know if i'm selling you something and i'm telling you it's it's better than what you can get from somebody else it's it's hard to know if that's you know just marketing speak is it greenwashing Um, is it real And, and what we want to do is provide that beacon of independence um and credibility so Actors in the market, be they suppliers, producers, growers, you know, buyers, end buyer, you know, traders, roasters, what have you, so they can see what's actually going on um, and have an open and honest discussion that's not clouded by that commercial imperative to make the sale. You know, that wealth is concentrated at the end buyer stage of the industry. Wealth is concentrated right. among the roasters. You know, and the, the trends of the last, you know, five years, ten years within coffee really speak to that, that there's enormous wealth being concentrated at the end of the chain. So if we're focused on eliminating poverty and working towards a more equitable coffee world, it seems to make sense to us that we should tap into that wealth and not further stress farmers who are under so much pressure or traders who have narrow margins. And making that something that's free for farmers seemed really, really critical to us if we wanted to get to the truth. You know, if we wanted to work with farmers in a way that, that they felt like we were actually adding value to this landscape. Yeah. When I first heard heard you guys speak or when we first had our, our meeting, the idea of categorizing sustainability as binary, yeah. as putting these things in these boxes and saying this has a label and therefore it is sustainable and this over here is not. And I think having access to that kind of marketing a lot of people are boxed out of that. Totally. totally. And so let's talk a little bit about how you're gathering this information and how you designed it to not be binary. Yeah, so we conduct surveys and we've basically built a set of tools that we you know, have designed centrally and deployed globally that are, you know, it, it's a, univer- a universal set of tools, but it can be adjusted to local conditions. Um, you know, we can translate the survey to different languages in different countries and different regions within countries. We can adjust questions to fit the local context. You know, we're not asking about a unit of measurement that is only used in Guatemala when we're talking to a farmer in Uganda um, and various things like that. So there's some, some flexibility to adjust to local conditions, but ultimately we've built a set of tools and then we work with local partners in the countries where we operate to build local capacity and hire young people in coffee producing communities to go out into those communities and talk to farmers to, you know, make unannounced visits to farms, to smallholder farmers during the harvest and ask them to volunteer their time to request that they participate in this study of coffee growing conditions. 
we keep all of their information confidential and then just aggregate the results of these surveys and of the observations that we're also taking while we're in the field to create this landscape level picture of what's going on in a region um, with respect to the standards. So, you know, we have teams in, in, we're currently operating in 12 different countries around the world. We've done uh, over the last three crop years, you know, we're, we're sort of finishing up our third crop year of doing this. Um, we've spoken to over 100,000 farmers around the world, which is That's an amazing. astronomical number. Like, yeah, and if you put that in the context of certifications, you know, each certification, RFA, you know, fair trade and others, annually, they're each doing about 2000 surveys. So we've done 100,000. And in this harvest, we've done we've done about half of that. Um, just scaling in the way that we have over the last few years. We've done about 50,000 surveys just this year, just this crop year. And and each survey is basically, you know, a 45-minute conversation with a farmer and a local enumerator who's gone through a, a pretty exhaustive training program that we administer and then we oversee the daily operations. But ultimately, you know, this is this is a conversation happening between two people with a you know relatively similar background, you know these are not expats who are who are flying in, talking to farmers um, in a way that they're not used to or in a language they don't understand through an interpreter. This is people who are from the communities where we're working, who have learned how to use the tools that we've designed and who have demonstrated you know their proficiency in using those tools and understanding what we're doing and in, in sharing the values that we have and, and are really excited to to participate in this program. I'm, I'm curious, both child labor and pesticides, yep. which are two things that I think a lot of consumers have been marketed at, about, yeah. um, with some misinformation about context of some of those things. Right. What have you encountered in terms of either of those? You know, the questions that we ask around child labor, well, first I should say the, the standard, you know, we have a standard titled no child labor, and we are reporting on three different aspects of child labor. The first one being whether or not children under the legal minimum working age are being hired. Right. Are they are they being hired by sure. a farmer? If a farmer hires labor, are they hiring children under that legal minimum working age? Sure. Um, secondly, if children are being hired, are they doing dangerous work? You know, are they operating heavy machinery? Are they applying banned pesticides? Are they applying pesticides at all? Are they working with agrochemicals? You know, are they doing other things that would be considered dangerous um, according to the International Labor Organization? Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, if they are working, is that impacting their ability to go to school? Or, or is there no school to go to? Or is there no school? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In which case, you know, and that would be sort of, you know, follow up to the data that again, we, we could see, oh, they're, they're, you know, we're noticing a lot of respondents are telling us, yes, mm -hmm. children are not going to school. And is that because they're working on coffee farms or is that because there is no school available? You know, and that's the kind of line of inquiry that we can draw out with this data. But what we're finding in a lot of places around the world is that I'm thinking specifically about Central America where there are uh, labor shortages. Right. You know, and, and as we all know, specialty coffee is very labor intensive, especially during the harvest. And so, and, and you know, we've seen this around the world where children may be working, 
in, it's it's still pretty rare in most places in the world for you know unaccompanied minors to be employed. It happens in coffee specifically. You know, cocoa is a different yeah. thing, but sort of unaccompanied minors who are seeking employment and then not going to school um, and doing dangerous work that's still pretty rare. You know, what's much more common is to see children helping their families. And they're collecting cherries, you know, so the family is getting compensated. By our definition, that's still child labor. They are working, but it's not interfering with their ability to go to school in a dramatic way. I would say it's more common for children to be helping their families. And mind you, you know, part of the context in coffee producing countries, the school year revolves around the coffee harvest. Mm -hmm. You know, the same thing in the US, right? Our, our like, our sort of idea of a, a summer off, you know, that that dates back to the 19th century. So we could all go work on the farms because this was an agrarian country. Can we go through the organic context as well? Sure. What's interesting is, and I know that you know this too, is that there was a shift when the coffee leaf rust, this fungus was just wiping through Central and South America. Yeah. And they chose varietals, they chose these coffee plants because they were more resistant they sort of started advising people to grow specific things. Right. And so, you know, we saw that happen. And now some, when I go to Colombia and I'm, you know, cupping through things and we find something that's really rare, like a pink bourbon, this like wild thing that is not that common in certain, in a lot of areas of Colombia. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, if the farmer's there, we ask, are you using pesticides? And the reason we're asking is because it's high risk if he doesn't have all of his organic practices together. Right. We want to make sure that this person is covering themselves and making sure that they chose to grow something that was unique and possibly risky for them. So what precautions are they taking on their end, not asking them to use pesticides, but really trying to learn that context? Have you found that that's the case for for farmers growing that kind of coffee? Or how is that gray area that we tend to put in two different buckets as far as this is certified, this is, you know, two to three years of 100 percent no chemicals versus Sometimes I have to use this because I made certain choices or there's an environmental context. I could be less than profitable this year if I don't make this choice. Right. Yeah, I think you're, descri- you're describing something that we think about a lot in, in terms of this sustainability paradox, um, where if you think of sort of a horseshoe shape, you know, where on the left you have, you know, a set of fire, if the, you know, the top of the horseshoe is 100% compliance with organic practices, you know, on the left side you have very sophisticated farmers who can employ those practices and who are certified organic and are extremely knowledgeable and employing the best, you know, pest and disease management and pruning and, you know, maintaining high yields and agroforestry systems and things like that. And then as you start to, to go, you know, sort of down into the, the, the trough of the horseshoe, you see more farmers like who you just described. You know that, that maybe there is a new variety, but it's it's susceptible to disease, and they have the resources to purchase pesticides. And pesticides might be you know controlled substances in their in their country, but they're not mm-hmm. banned. They're not illegal. You know they might be illegal in the EU. They might be you know on a list in the United States. You know the international community might consider them banned, but in in Central America, in Southeast Asia, these chemicals are not. So they're available, they're readily available and they're effective. Um, so farmers avail themselves of that. And then if you keep going and start and, and you start to go sort of up the trough again, back towards higher compliance, 
you're essentially going into communities that are too poor to buy those pesticides. And you start to find a lot of organic by default mm -hmm. production. But what does that mean? You know, is that is that the same as a, you know, highly profitable, mechanized, very sophisticated farm that's employing organic practices, you know, doing sophisticated agroforestry? Or is it, you know, is that different when you can find the same outcome in a community that is much poorer by those standards and so they can't afford those same kind of inputs and but then the yields are much lower generally speaking you know and there's not a very there's a much more sort of passive approach to agriculture even to thinking about it like that you know it's kind of like yeah it's my garden there's the trees i just get the coffee when it's ready and i sell it and that's all i do you know there's not very much sort of active engagement but we find the same kind of environmental outcomes with respect to these things that we look at when we look at organic inputs. So we, we're, we're, you know, we're sort of mapping that out and seeing, oh, where, where, you know, do we find a lot of chemicals being used? And it's generally somewhere in the middle. We've done a lot of work around this to try to unpack these issues. Um, so there can be a more open and honest dialogue around why this is an issue first and foremost, and what can be done about it. You know, what can we do to, because every, I don't, I don't think anybody is really you know, excited about higher levels of pollution. You know, if there's an alternative, there's something that, that works better. You know, I, I haven't met any farmers around the world that take any, you know, pleasure in, in harming the environment. No. You know, I think there's <laughs> yeah. general awareness that they understand that they need the environment. That's, that's what's sustaining. That's what's providing them an income from coffee is a healthy environment. So the more that we can, you know, learn totally. about the issues that farmers are facing and organic is a, is a great field of inquiry for this. The more we can understand the situation from their perspective, I think the more effective we can be in terms of working together to find solutions that, you know, are affordable, are realistic for farmers, do result in the same kind of outcomes that a lot of agrochemicals do, but don't compromise their ability to, you know, continue growing coffee in the future. Why do you think that this can happen now? Like, it's interesting because once sort of the third wave was moving towards, you know, know your, know your farmer, know your relationships, know the people that are sourcing it, that's how you're going to get like, quote unquote, ethical coffee, right? Mm -hmm. But we didn't have all of this data. You just right. really had to trust everyone in your supply chain. Exactly. And that's in part why a lot of people travel to origin. It's to make sure it's to go in person and to talk with the farmer and make sure that they got paid what you thought they got paid. You yeah. know, some people make sure that they do that every year. So now that this is happening, it might change the landscape of buying, marketing, all of these things. Right. But why now? A technology. I mean, that's a simple answer. Technology yeah. and the will to do it. You know, David Browning and Carl Servone, the co-founders of Inveritas, just decided, you know, they were going to start an organization to do this. It's honestly... And I'm not saying this just okay. to like flatter you guys, but it was, it's the first thing in a long time that's given me hope for the industry oh, because nice. it's taking the standards of other codified knowledge structures and placing them with context and perspective and yeah. tone and sensitivities and like, oh, it just made me so happy. Amazing. Amazing. I love it. And therein lies the other opportunity that we have as in Veritas, you know, to maintain our independence, to maintain that our values and our integrity and our focus on the mission. And so to the extent that we can provide some more clarity about what's going on, where impact can happen, you know, is, is really something that 
that keeps us motivated and encourages us to feel like it's actually possible to achieve this goal, that, that poverty within coffee producing communities could be something that is part of history and that we all live for many years in a world where there are no coffee farmers who are enduring the pain of poverty and that we could play a small part in that is something that gets us up in the morning. Thanks to Nick for taking the time to chat. And Veritas is currently working on a totally different problem than what they're tackling in growing regions. How do we communicate this kind of information, contextual data, that doesn't fit in the boxes we're used to checking when we design packaging or create marketing strategies? If you have any suggestions for them or have any interest in working with them, you can find them online in veritas.org. Without a doubt, the most pressing issue in coffee is price. How much should coffee cost? Like any business, that number should come from an understanding of how much it costs to produce the product, plus a margin to become profitable instead of breaking even. But as we learned in the intro, that's not how the majority of coffee is traded. The company I work for sets prices outside of the sea market, that volatile method of pricing coffee that's the standard of trade. There's a few companies that do this, I can only speak to the way we do business. We get our numbers a few ways. One of those ways are cost of production studies. So I wanna give you some context for the next interview. A great way to contextualize this cost of production issue is looking at a farmer's data. One issue with determining price based on cost of production is that it's not common for a farmer to concretely know all of their costs because it requires meticulous record keeping. So I'm gonna give you one example of a farmer that we worked with that did one of these studies. Maria Bracelia Martinez is a unique producer and her daughter graduated college with an accounting degree. She keeps detailed accounts of her expenses on her farm, Los Angeles and Acevedo Vida, Colombia. In the 2017-2018 season, Maria and her partners, Fairfield Trading, conducted a cost of production study. Maria is an extraordinary producer with 70% of her crop meeting the highest quality standards of the industry. While the other 30% may be below those quality standards, those lots required just as much labor and expense to produce. Together, they found that it cost $1.71 per pound to produce both categories of coffee. Adding margin to make it a profitable business, it would not make sense for Maria to continue producing coffee year to year if she received less than $2.50 a pound. So let's quickly compare that to the sea market price today. Today, the sea market is at $1 a pound. Even if we added a differential, meaning an additional number added to compensate for the specific country or quality, it's unlikely that if Maria worked with partners that priced this way, she would make any money. So what typically happens is that Maria's high-end coffees would get a premium and her lower scoring coffees would get sea market prices, meaning she would either break even or go into debt. Luckily, that's not the case here, and Maria can negotiate based on her true costs. Now, I wanna to turn to our second guest, who's a cafe owner, a coffee roaster, and has studied some of the issues we're talking about at Florida State. His cafe is located in Portland, Oregon, and if you just happen to stumble into his coffee shop, I think you would be surprised to know that this little roastery is making a lot of waves in the industry. A few years ago, I met Mike, co-owner of Junior's Roasted Coffee. He told me he wanted to fill the gap in his consumer base, he wanted to educate them about the idea of cost of production. If you look up the hashtag, ask me about cost of production, you'll find events in multiple cities, interviews, blogs, all praising this conversation and approach. Let's dive in. 
you've made a few changes within your cafe to sort of have this conversation. I remember seeing online that you had changed the either the Wi-Fi password or the Wi-Fi um, handle <laughs> to ask me about cost of production. So what's your experience been like sort of having this conversation in Portland? I think it's really interesting, especially in Portland, because the market is so saturated with coffee that it almost has the tendency to drive prices down because competition is is so intense. Do you find that to be the case? Absolutely. I see this project as having two parts. First part was identifying the cost of production and incorporating that into the contract with this first farm that we started working with. So identifying that cost to produce and building into the contract, including farm reinvestment and margin. Second part is communicating this information to consumers and to the industry. This kind of information, as you know, I mean, it's it's not easy to talk about. It, yeah. It's not only uncomfortable, it's, it's just, it's a complicated thing to get across quickly. You know, it's even, I mean, direct trade is, that concept was easy compared to something like this. And and I think that it's because we're actually getting to what the problem is. I think that communicating direct trade or, or fair trade, you know, I think that we have this like loose grasp that we're not paying enough for coffee and farm, you know, that's leading to poverty, but not, you know, not looking at these greater structures. So communicating this, we want we took a, a diverse approach we, we needed a multifaceted strategy. So first thing we did was we listed sea price, um, the cost to produce, and our farm gate price on the coffee label. And that was on the bag of coffee beans? Exactly. And so, you know, at the top of the label, it's, you know, talking about where this coffee is coming from, tasting notes in two sentences. And then at the bottom, it's all of this cost of production information. And so on the label, we also describe it as a cost of production covered coffee. After that, we put together a comic book, like a zine, we call it a comic book, for folks to engage with while they're waiting in line at the cafe. We, we've been working on distribution as well, getting this comic into as many hands as possible. It's about five pages and details the project, even the sea market to give context in, in kind of a playful way, you know, that communicating some very large uh, concepts and ideas in a comic. Yeah, I love that you, you chose that to be one of the strategies, because I think coffee over time has tried many strategies. Fair trade was prompted by, you know, the uprisings and you know, the strife that was happening in Central Central America. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we were humanizing it, right? And so it was like, okay, let's try the certification game and try to humanize it and have this conversation. And then, then you have, uh, you know, all of these different waves. Then it's environmental, then it's organic, then it's direct. And it's like, I don't, we still haven't been successful having this conversation. We still haven't been able to get people to pay more for coffee. And so I love the idea of a zine or a comic because it's like, hey, let's try this. Let's make it fun in a different way. Totally. It, yeah. I mean, people learn in, in different ways. And to have these images accompany these concepts, and I see comics and zines as, you know, powerful activism tools. And we see customers reading these comic books with their kids, even, you know, I think that it can appeal to all age groups and just coffee drinkers and non coffee drinkers, because where we're leading at the end of this comic is that this applies to all 
the way in which we consume things. Aside from that, we've been hosting events, inviting people from the industry and non-industry folks. The Wi-Fi password was something that we kind of joked about at first, but became part of the strategy. Changing the password to ask me about cost of production, you know, so much so I, I can be in the office and I can overhear customers sharing the password <laughs> to each other. Um, sure. And even just to hear cost of production repeated so, so often in the cafe cool. just makes me happy. I think that, you know, that's been something that we're just going to keep kind of reworking and incorporating into our strategy. Wow. What have been some of the conversations that you've had that have sort of surprised you that you've had maybe with your customers, probably not industry facing necessarily? Are they surprised at this number? Do you find that they respond consistently in a specific way when you share about this? Because it is really heavy, right? So there's not always a good time or a place to learn about this. Mm -hmm. So if they're not really actively seeking this out, but they learn it, what's the general response? I'll say it's uh, mixed. Some folks ask and some folks don't. Those that ask, they think, wow, that, you know, they'll say that's really interesting. Some people honestly look distressed. Sure. I mean, it is distressing. Absolutely. You, you were like, oh my God, I've been contributing to something without even knowing. Yeah. You know, it's kind of time that we talk about this uncomfortable stuff and that it doesn't always have to be so uplifting that we, we have to talk about the hard stuff. We'll usually direct people to the comic book too if they want to learn more about the project because we are counter service. And so, you know, you've really got 10 seconds, you know, 10 to 15 seconds to interact with someone and share this project that took us a year and a half to roll out. Okay, so 10 seconds at the register. I've ordered a delicious cup of coffee. Give me your pitch. <laughs> you know, coffee is traded as a commodity. This price is. Uh, set by commodities and futures traders. The prices paid to coffee farmers per pound are often way below the cost to actually produce that coffee. We found out how much it costs to produce a pound of this coffee. We based our price on that as well as reinvestment back into the farm and profit margin. That's one way to look at it. Farms are businesses just like us or like any other business, and the prices that farms receive for coffee don't even cover their own costs to make their product that we consume every day. This is why we need to pay more for coffee. And so I think that the angle that we started taking with this project by stating that farms are businesses just like us, it's a way to kind of bring that into people's backyards. To connect with the consumer as a small business owner, people give it, you know, they, they understand. So I think that it's important to get people to look at all producers, all products this way. That's kind of, that's been the common ground. That's my landing this concept in someone's backyard tactic. There are a lot of people who buy really cheap coffee because they build it into their business plan, not really knowing that what they're buying is below cost of production, even though they have a roastery. Mm -hmm. And... I think that it's sensitive in multiple areas because consumers don't know, but also roasters don't always right. know. Absolutely. With this kind of project, by paying cost of production, I don't want us to be seen as like saving any anyone, right? We're working together. This is farmers are providing this excellent product 
this is a partnership. They are helping us with our business, and I hope we are helping them with their business. It's just good business. It's just good business. Right. And I, I, I think that the conversation up until, honestly, recently, and the way it's being framed is that by buying Farm Direct or Direct Trade or whatever, that we are saving producers. I think that's uh, just a, a really troubling way to frame things and to think. Yeah, you don't want to, there is this, um, this thing that you want to be really careful of, which is this like white savior complex. And I see it with some companies that are religious and I see it with some companies that source a particular way. And then I see people that do a great job and don't do that at all. But it, I think in general, when you talk about this relationship of like the global South yeah. and a developed country, an overdeveloped country, I would say, when they take care of everyone in the supply chain or when they're doing quote unquote good that it's a favor when really this is just about a dignified price and a dignified mm -hmm. exchange of goods. And, yeah, an appropriate price. Yeah, I think that too, this, this trade is rooted in colonialism and to have any sort of change take place in this with our existing structures, I think that we need to focus on what matters to all involved, let's say stakeholders, all involved members of this trade. You know, we need to to listen in, in how we produce knowledge, how we share it with each other. But I think that moving forward, it's hard to just have cost of production be kind of a, a think that there's a silver bullet here or that there's an easy solution. I think that it's we need to come at it from several different angles. Yeah, I've seen tech sort of jump in and... It's been really interesting to talk to people in that space that are saying, oh, yeah, we're going to put blockchain in this and you're going to know exactly what's going on. And they and they sort of look at me like, do you realize that this is fundamentally going to change everything? <laughs> I'm I'm really hopeful. Yeah, I think that it, it is so encouraging to see these these solutions are innovative. You know, I think that suddenly this starts to see seem like the. Uh, that silver bullet or the the panacea solution like oh cool like blockchain will that's that's it that's the answer right there that's going to change the the system where i think that you know we can't we can't forget about the fact that this commodity is so entrenched with the world you know and and our consumption habits and, and capitalism that there are behaviors to change there are attitudes and it's a cultural shift for sure. When I was living in Chicago, I moved out to LA. I worked, I was a barista in both places and just seeing that in Chicago, people would get so annoyed that they had to pay $2 and 50 cents a cup. And then going to LA, you didn't get to choose your size. You didn't get to choose your coffee. It was $5 yeah. and that was it. And it was no discussion. And in that culture, it worked. Yeah. You know, but it but it does get at this kind of idea of accessibility, you know, and just kind of where I've been where I've been torn. I think that we've tried really hard to justify price with flavor, and I think that there's a lot to be said mm -hmm. with that in every industry. But the accessibility component and thinking about where you are in the spaces you're consuming it in, I think is so so important just to to echo on that like where are you going who are you hiring mm -hmm. what do your baristas look like like or do they look like the neighborhood that you're in like who are you trying to attract are your tables 
comfortable? Is it a comfortable space to be in? Is it immediately alienating because of what you're doing? You know, I think that we're not always realizing that we're creating these issues and then being like, yeah, but look, I can charge $6 for a cappuccino. Um, it's like, yes, but for who? Yeah, right? no, absolutely. You know, I think that when we, when we opened, I had to get very real about our budget, you know, the kinds of equipment we carried and you know, I have to put my money where my mouth is and get very real about cost. To be totally frank, I think that it's why we've structured the coffee menu the way we have with, you know, in terms of flavor profile and honestly price point. That while we don't have, we don't work with blends, uh, we purchase Brazilian coffee. So we can you know, the flavor profile, it's low acid, et cetera, et cetera, you know, heavy, mm-hmm. um, chocolatey. Easy to drink, super balanced. So yeah. It, but also it's cheaper to produce. Exactly. And so we can keep our price point down and have this be an accessible cup of coffee in many ways. So are the Brazilian coffees that you're carrying, are they hand-picked or are they mechanically picked? Mechanical. Okay. Yes. So you have a labor generally taken out of it. Totally. So trying to weave that in more, whereas I, Portland, it's just such a, you know, it's, it's, it's a bubble. People come in asking for if we have any naturals. And if we say no, well, we do right at the moment. But if we said no, people would leave. Yeah. Whoa. I wonder what the price threshold is for something that you consume daily, like coffee. Like I, you know, sometimes I'll use beer or wine as an example to compare and say, this was produced, you know, this is a beautiful red from, you know, Oregon or from California, and you're totally willing to pay this $9 per glass. Think about your coffee. Could you pay $4.50 every day if you're going out for coffee? You know, like, where, where are we okay spending our money? And part, sometimes, um, I think it's because it's a daily ritual and that people feel it more. Do you think that that contributes to people's price thresholds? Oh, wow. Absolutely. I think that that absolutely complicates the issue is that, okay, we treat it as this specialty good, but there are people that are coming in to the cafe every day. I mean, literally every day for the last two years that we've been operating that get the same thing. They get a, you know, 12 ounce cup of coffee to go same time every day. Yeah. And we want to encourage that, right? Like it's so cool because that's part of cafe culture is like being able to come in and have this community. Well, so recently we just changed our prices in the cafe. Uh, Up until, up until Monday, we were offering free refills. Hmm, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed to say it. It was something that we started with that was just kind of like in the end felt like a runaway train. Sure. But that's quite common in Portland, right? I mean, it's not uncommon there. Yeah, or or like a discounted refill. But, you know, where I was coming from, the coffee companies that I worked for, like it, it was quite common. You know, you get a free refill with a cup to stay. So what we wanted to do was get rid of refills and just a refill is the full price of another cup. Mm-hmm. We compromised and raised the price for a cup and we're charging half the price of that cup for a refill. So right now it's $3 for, you know, a 12-ounce coffee. And so for a refill, it's $1.50. Mm-hmm. 
That sounds like a steal to me, actually. I mean, maybe that's my San Francisco showing, but I'm like, damn, that sounds good. That's what I say. Yeah. Um, simultaneously, we we raise the prices to accurately reflect our cost of goods for our food as well, and our other coffee drinks. Mm. Of you know, raising prices on food, raising prices on coffee drinks. The only negative negativity we've gotten from our customers has to do with refills. Really? That's the only resistance that we've encountered with raising food and drink prices has been with refills. Well, I think that people that go for the free refill option, mm -hmm. they think they see that and the kind of people that gravitate towards that are trying to stretch their money, right? I mean, when I was in college, I was all about that because I knew that I could sit there for a certain amount of time and I could go back and I it was like I was budgeting in that way. And so maybe it's because that specific product attracted a certain type of customer. Mm -hmm. I think that too, it's folks that come in and they work in the, the cafe for several hours and they're just downing cups of coffee. I've been torn between coffee as, you know, we treat it as the specialty good, but I also want coffee to be accessible for everyone. Yeah. So you have a very educated consumer base in a lot of ways in the sense of understanding what they're asking for, requesting specific things. And yet you also have people who are really frustrated that you're starting to charge for refills, even though it's half of what that cost of coffee, that cost of the coffee really is. So when you made the decision to, you know, sort of shift a few things and then start charging mm -hmm. for refills and you landed on that $1.50 number, was it $1.50? Yeah. Um, are you hoping yeah. to eventually be able to eliminate them altogether or was the backlash so um, intense that you're going to have to stick there sort of for a while? What's the long-term sort of goal of communicating that? Cause it sounds like you have a very interesting yeah. uh, ground to walk on. I, I think um, it was the way I've explained it um, to staff, honestly, is that this was a compromise. It truly uh, pained me to do it because it makes me feel, it makes me feel like a hypocrite sure. with this project. But this is the reality of the applied version of it. Like we have price thresholds in the marketplace. So you, you have to compromise a lot, I think. So now I'm coming at it as a business owner thinking, okay, if we do this, am I actually going to lose regulars? If so, like, sure. I know that some people, you know, they might think, well, I'm not going to go there today because I, whatever, I, I don't have 450 on me and I want two cups of coffee. But a lot of that, and that could be troubling. I think what the refill folks have in common with the people Absolutely. coming in requesting certain varieties or processes is that cost of production is a new thing, is a new idea. Even for the niche Portland coffee industry, that like what you were saying with roasters, not knowing what the sea market was, We've run into that too at cost of production events. So I think that we've been taking a lot for granted in the way that we uh, share information with other industry professionals and consumers. And so I think that that's why we've kind of focused so much on the strategy itself of communicating cost of production stuff is that I think that we've been just, we've been sharing these concepts or not sharing them uh, inadequately, you know? that what we've been telling baristas matters, I think is inadequate. 
I see this. I mean, I am. We have a business to run, but Karen and I, when we started juniors, we didn't want to just have a business for the sake of having business. That we are activists at heart, and we. It's hard for us to just feel content with the way that things are going. That as business owners, you have power, you know, to to make decisions. It's hard because we come. We have baristas in the Portland coffee community saying, what can I do? My manager or the business owner is reluctant to change this. What can I do? So Karen and I, we want to hear more from business owners. We want to see more commitments from the people making these decisions. And that's honestly at events that uh, held or been a part of, it's kind of the people that you're not seeing turn up. Granted, like, as you know, we're all very busy as business owners, but it's the people that need to be there, you know, the the people with these that get to make the final say. Yeah. When you chose to get into an industry that has colonial roots, that has, you know, something like the sea market, which is completely predatory and volatile. Mm-hmm. That's where you decided to like plant your seeds. You know, that's where you, you have the LLC, yeah. you're buying equipment, like, all right, follow through. Let's do it together. Yeah. In the, the beginning stages of this project, I started not not worrying, but feeling somewhat uh, powerless in the sense that, like, well, we're a tiny, we're a, you know, we're like a nano roastery. Like, what impact is this going to have? Well, since we've started, we've been talking with more and more of these nano roasteries that we can start kind of forming larger bodies to tackle these really complex issues, if enough of us get together and get behind this, we can actually have a voice. When you have something like this where you can go and see a farmer be able to fill their home with furniture, which is the first thing they're gonna you know, do, clothing, goods, making sure that they have things to be comfortable, that's the first thing they need to do. They're not gonna invest that right back in their farm. They're gonna make sure they're taken care of. And when you can measurably see a family impacted, one, roaster can do that. They can do that over three years and change the game. So I think I tend to say, oh, these big systems and it feels so overwhelming. But I mean, I imagine you've also seen firsthand, like, this is real. And it's not charity. It's just like doing better business is good for everyone involved. Thanks so much to Mike for joining us. You can find their zine and everything they're up to online at juniorsroastedcoffee.com. Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Flatbroke Robot. Special thanks to our donors who all helped make this possible. Megan King, Ray King, Christopher Kissick, Deb Maggio, Gus and Mary Ann Bonderhide, Jose Posadas, Courtney Minnick, Jen Apodaca, Vanessa Brown, Jonathan Joseph, and Max Keeley. We couldn't have done it without you. Thanks for joining us on Sorceress. Until next time, stay curious.